Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC and more than 20 other coins. Download the Crypto.com app now to find out how much you could be earning. Today's topic is Ethereum 2.0, which launches seven days after 524,288 ETH are claimed in the deposit contract. We will unpack what that means in a moment. Here to discuss are Ryan Watkins and Wilson Withiam, both senior research analysts at Masari. Welcome, Ryan and Wilson. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having us on. Hi, Laura. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this topic. Um, yeah, so thanks for having us on. Let's just start with a real basic question. What is Ethereum 2.0? Yeah, so uh, I think Ethereum 2.0 is, is a couple of things. Uh, most importantly for Ethereum, it's uh, kind of its most ambitious upgrade that's been seven years in the making that will scale Ethereum so that it can actually serve as a globally scalable financial infrastructure. Uh, and then two, it would also make it uh, you know, more secure. Uh, and then as well, it will also transform uh, ETH as an asset. Those kind of like the, the big picture ideas of, of what Ethereum 2.0 brings to, to Ethereum. And what problems does Ethereum hope to resolve with this upgrade? Yeah, so uh, as far as like Ethereum, the, the blockchain, it's really um, a couple of things. And I'll divide this into uh, proof of stake and then sharding, which are kind of the two major components of Ethereum 2.0. And with proof of stake, uh, it's trying to solve uh, three things. Uh, one is uh, making Ethereum more secure. Uh, two is ridding it of centralization risk from miners. And then uh, three is making sure that uh, participation in the consensus process is as accessible to users as, as possible. Um, so that's, that's for proof of stake. And then for uh, sharding, that's the uh, scaling solution for Ethereum. And basically what that entails is uh, it's like splitting up the Ethereum blockchain into uh, subsets called shards and uh, running them in parallel. And the reason why you do this is because you want to keep uh, the requirements to run a node as low as possible so that uh, there's not an excessive burden on people who, who run these nodes and it uh, is actually accessible to people uh, with you know, basically just like consumer hardware. Um, and the reason why you do that is because it ensures that you can get the scalability while maintaining that core property of being decentralized. Yeah. And I, I think I'll add to that is what we've seen since Ethereum launched is 
that it's run into a couple issues along the line, um, specifically during 2017, during the ICO craze. And then most recently, uh, this past summer, when uh, when various DeFi liquidity mining programs were up and running, that under its current architecture, it can get under uh, a significant amount of load. And that tends to delay transactions and also increase the transaction cost. So it was a recognized... Ethereum 2.0 was... Uh, Ethereum developers and researchers recognizing that under Ethereum's current architecture that it couldn't scale to meet these um, characteristics that they were truly desiring out of the platform. So we're going to dive into each of these in greater depth throughout the episode, but let's do first a quick overview of the different phases of Ethereum 2.0. Can you name them and describe what happens in each? Of course. Yeah, happy to. So the first phase is the one that is eminent. Uh, the one where users can actually start staking is called phase zero. And that simply is the launch of something called the beacon chain. And the beacon chain is basically your central core layer of this new network. So it's separate from the existing network. And uh, it will be this coordination layer that gets p- allows people to stake. It coordinates all the different validators or stakers on on the platform. And then it acts as the coordination layer for all the additional upgrades that will be added later on. So all the additional shards, uh, it will serve as a reference point to all of those. So it can actually connect information between um, all those other chains that eventually get added later on. Um, The second phase, phase one, a little bit of a longer timeline. So... I think some of the uh, early estimates are maybe late 2021. Uh, that will add the scalability component. So phase zero, nothing much more than staking and reaching consensus. The phase one will be adding all these different shard layers, and that will be the base scalability component um, for Ethereum 2.0. And um, so really phase one is just kind of reaching consensus of with a whole lot of different things. So you're reaching consensus not only on the beacon chain, but also incorporating all those other shard chains. So how do you reference the uh, the block data that gets added to the entire network across all these uh, across 65 different chains? The third phase is called phase 1.5, uh, and that is actually be the merge of the existing network with the new network Ethereum 2.0, and really it's just a simple swap of the proof of work consensus layer that Ethereum uses right now over to the proof of stake layer that's on Ethereum 2.0. So how it's gonna look like to um, most users and applications, I, it's, it's not gonna change a whole lot. Uh, it's supposed to be pretty seamless, uh, but a lot of it's just gonna be the underlying layer where it just kind of switches over and every, all the blocks are being created through proof of stake instead of by miners. Um, and then the final phase, the big one is uh, like phase two, and that will be when you're adding execution to these different shards. So during fi- the first three phases, they actually will not have smart contracts execution ability. Uh, they won't have smart contract execution ability, so you won't be able to actually port smart contracts onto these individual shards. But there is a bit of a caveat to this whole process, and it's that um, you might be able to start using some of these shards for scalability means before phase two. And so there is a possibility that you can get the scalability gains without having to 
uh, add smart contract execution ability to every single one of these shards. So there is uh, a route as we're going down this roadmap for ETH 2.0, where phase two may not necessary, it may, it may not be necessary. Um, so even though it might be further out on the uh, on the timeline, um, you can start seeing the advancements that ETH 2.0 are bringing far sooner than that. We're going to spend most of the show talking about phase zero, which is the most imminent change, as you mentioned. And listeners should know that we're recording this on Monday, November 23rd, um, because <laughs> there's kind of things going on right now. So by the time this comes out, we don't really know where where uh, things will have landed. Um, however, at this moment, there we're about 75% of the way to meeting the minimum threshold and um and that would trigger off like a 7 day period before the network could launch uh, and uh, although also the earliest day it could launch would be on December 1st so it's kind of like uh tomorrow November 24th really is you know the the first day when uh people would have the opportunity to stake that minimum amount so um can you just maybe go through the technical details of of what is required to make this launch happen there's really two components uh, to when this chain can launch. And really there's, like you mentioned, a minimum deposit amount and a minimum Genesis date. Um, and so really all you really need to meet is that minis- minimum deposit amount, which is 524,288 ETH. And as soon as validators deposit that into this contract, which lives on the current Ethereum network, um, it will go into the deposit contract. People can start running clients on this new Ethereum 2.0 network now. And as a client, recon- they read the contract. They'll recognize it. If it's a valid deposit, they'll then allow... They'll tell the uh, new beacon chain to mint 32 ETH for that validator. Um, so they can start staking on the network. Uh, so really just kind of a, a constant contact between the two chains, uh, all generated through that single contract. The, uh, the other component, the minimum Genesis date is, uh, right now listed as December 1st. And it must, it, all that means is it, that is the earliest date it can launch. Um, so it can launch anytime after that. It just needs to meet that minimum deposit amount. And, uh, for that deposit amount, like once that deposit amount is reached, there is a seven day delay between when it's reached and when it's launched. So yeah, like you mentioned, earliest amount, it could be November 24th. That means it, that implies a December 1st launch date. It can launch, uh, you can reach that minimum amount anytime after that. Um, and then seven days after it reaches that amount, um, then the, then the chain will officially launch. And so do you guys want to make a bet? Um, we can all either look really stupid or really dumb by the time this comes out, because everybody will already know by this time, by the time this comes out. Um, but we at this moment in time don't. Do you think we're going to get the minimum threshold by tomorrow, the no- November 24th? Yeah, I, I do. I agree. I, pl- I, 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 would, I would put money on it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have a feeling as well, because just even in the time that I was researching for this show, the minimum amount is going up very quickly. And so today, right when I uh, went to write this, or write, you know, make that little change on what amount we're at right now, I was surprised to find we're at 75%. So 
um, we were joking before we started recording the show that we think the whales are all back channeling right now. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, um, all right. So regardless of when the launch actually occurs, let's discuss one of the most fundamental changes that's happening, which is this switch to proof of stake from proof of work. Why is Ethereum moving away from proof of work to proof of stake? So I touched on this a little bit in the uh, overall design of Ethereum 2.0, and it's really uh, three things. It is for security, it is for energy efficiency, and then it's to uh, reduce the risk of centralization for miners. Uh, and I can, I can dive into all three. So on the security front, uh, you know, basically the idea here is can be divided into two different categories. Uh, one is that uh, you want to make the cost to attack the blockchain very high. And then the other one is that in the extreme case where you do get attacked, like a 51% attack, it's easier to uh, kind of coordinate a new chain that gets rid of the, uh, the attacker. Um, so the way this works in, in proof of stake versus proof of work is, well, um, actually I'll even rewind to GPU-based uh, proof of work because that's, that's what Ethereum currently operates on. Now, GPUs are ubiquitous. They're like all over the world. They have a ton of different use cases. Um, and if you really wanted to, you could rent out GPUs and use those GPUs to attack a, a proof of work blockchain. And we've seen that with um, you know, some blockchains that exist that, that are um, susceptible to this, these attacks. Um, now, proof of work under, like with, with ASICs, is a little bit different because uh, ASICs are specifically designed to, to mine the cryptocurrency uh, that, that they've been designed for. So with Bitcoin, you know, their ASICs are designed to, to mine Bitcoin. That's the only thing they can be used for. So it's not just about your ability to be able to rent out this hash power from some cloud provider. Uh, proof of work invo first involves some, you know, high initial upfront investment to, to actually participate in this mining process. Now, the, the difference between proof of work and proof of stake is that um, with proof of stake, there's, there's two different things with this, the upfront investment. It's one, uh, whereas with an ASIC, an ASIC uh, typically depreciates over, say, about two years, and then you have to buy a new one to stay competitive. Uh, your stake is just an internal accounting measure in Ethereum, and you know, it doesn't depreciate. And then uh, two, uh, your stake uh, also... Uh, it's, it's not like permanently locked. You can actually remove it after a withdrawal period. So really, like when you go to stake, you only face an opportunity cost. And the reason why those two things are important, you know, not being uh, a depreciating asset and then two, uh, only facing opportunity costs is that it makes uh, the attractiveness of putting up more capital uh, at risk uh, a little bit um, more attractive. And the reason why is because, you know, if you can just pull out your, your, your stake, you know, after withdrawal period, uh, if your stake doesn't depreciate, then you're probably more willing to accept a low return for a given amount of capital you put up. Um, so it raises the the kind of the cost to to attack. Um, so that's one aspect of the the proof of stake component. The other one is like how you know it's harder to counter to or it's easier to counter coordinate uh, against the 51 percent attack. Now the idea with that is that when you ingrain it, like it's very difficult to 51 percent attack. Uh, a proof of work blockchain like like Bitcoin at this point. You know, talk, you're talking about billions of dollars in investment and and much more. But in the case that someone was able to 51% attack uh, Bitcoin, 
uh, there's basically a couple things you could do. You could basically create a fork and switch the mining, rog- min- uh, mining algorithm to something else so that uh, the attacker can't continue to use their ASICs to, uh, to attack the chain. Uh, but the problem when you do that is that, well, now you have to bootstrap, bootstrap hash power for this new chain. And you know, probably the way you're going to do that is by switching to an algorithm that can be mined using, say, GPUs, right? And then what was one of the things that I mentioned previously is that you can just run hash power for GPUs on the internet. And then you can kind of just keep, and then maybe you can say like, okay, if the person keep attacking, well, we can just keep on forking. But it's just kind of this never ending cycle of keeping having to fork and um, someone being able to attack it. Now, the difference with proof of stake is that in the event there's a 51% attack and run it, you know, like I said, it'd be extremely difficult because, uh, you know, where are you going to buy, let's say like right now there's 10% ETH uh, participating in proof of stake and ETH is worth, you know, $60 billion market cap. That's, Six billion dollars with the ETH you need to buy. I mean, I don't know where you're going to buy six billion dollars with the ETH, but you know if you could do that. Thing is, like if you're launching a 51 percent attack on ETH, like Ethereum can create a a new fork. And granted, you know forking is is, is definitely hard, but they create a new fork and just delete your stake. And so basically, like the, the equivalent, um, you know that that you know many Ethereum researchers have uh, you know created analogy is that. Uh, it's almost like the equivalent of burning someone's ASIC farm when you uh, can, you know, slash someone's stake for behaving maliciously. And it's a way of kind of permanently uh, ending this person's ability to attack the, the proof of stake blockchain. Um, so that was, a, that was a long portion on security. The other, the other two are much quicker on, uh, you know, mining centralization and, and energy efficiency. Uh, energy efficiency, the, the, the basic idea is, you know, Bitcoin uh, uses a tremendous amount of energy to uh, secure itself, you know, as much as a, a small country. And, you know, you can debate whether that's uh, good or bad. Um, and, you know, like it's, it's, it's doing something useful. But end of the day, it's still you're burning enormous amounts of electricity to, to make this thing work. So if you could do it more efficiently, it's probably a good thing. Uh, and then last one on reducing mining centralization risks, that's reducing the risk from um, across a couple of different dimensions. I mean, one is just geographical. So if you think about, uh, it's not like some conspiracy theory against Bitcoin, but uh, you know, 65% of hash power is, is in China. Um, so that's, that's kind of like you know, one risk you can get rid of uh, with proof of stake. Uh, there's also the risk that um, of like manufacturer centralization. So uh I want to say like about 90% of all ASICs are manufactured uh, amongst four firms in Asia. Uh, so there's kind of that risk there. Uh, another thing with proof of work uh, or ASICs is that there's economies of scale. So the, the larger you become, the more cheap it becomes for you to, to mine with uh, Bitcoin because you can negotiate bulk orders for ASICs. Um, and it's just you know easier to scale it, whereas with proof of stake, uh, in theory, anyone who has 32 ETH can you know quite easily participate in the consensus process um, using commodity hardware. Um, so that's the basic, the basic idea with mining centralization risk is just kind of getting rid of those uh, those risks. Although you know maybe not that likely, just getting rid of the the fact that they they, they exist. Yeah, I, I like one thing I want to dive into a little bit is how staking works exactly, because I just wonder, is it going to be one of those situations where, yeah, okay, like, 
you know, more everyday people can become stake uh, validators, but then, you know, I don't, I don't know what it takes to, um, be running a validating node and, and keeping it, uh, keeping the uptime such that you won't get penalized or slashed. So, you know, I just wonder, will a lot of these end up being on centralized services anyway, where, you know, they're kind of paying somebody else to do that part for them? Yeah. Um, so as far as like, how can you stake? Uh, there's probably three different ways. Uh, one would be doing it through a centralized provider, like an exchange or a staking as a service provider who will just do all the work for you. Uh, and the benefit of that is not only convenience, but the fact that you can do it with less than 32 ETH. So if you hold one ETH, you can now participate in this. Uh, the second way is to do it yourself. And if you're doing it yourself, um, it's actually not that difficult. You can, you can do it on you know, a pretty standard laptop. And the way that the uh, incentive systems uh, kind of, of rewards and penalties was designed is that so it's like very forgiving. Uh, so, you know, if even if you are, you're, you're down, like your, your computer is down uh, 20% of the year, uh, you'll likely still be able to be profitable. Um, so that's what I mean. Like it was designed to be uh, forgiving so that, you know, even if you're, you know, just it's not good, you know, a high uptime, you can still be uh, profitable uh, or at the very least, like not, not lose your money. Um, and then uh, kind of third would be these kind of like decentralized staking pools that, uh, are almost like two-sided marketplaces where on one end you have people who want to stake who submit their ETH to this uh, contract and this contract then goes and uh, allocates that stake to different validators in this uh, ecosystem. And that's another way of uh, participating in, in staking. All right. And then um, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the opportunity cost between staking and doing other things. But let's just make one thing clear. Once people move their Ethereum to Ethereum 2.0 in order to stake, they're not able to use it anymore. Why is that? Um, so you kind of at, at this point, there are two different chains. Uh, and so you don't want to have two different chains that represent the same native asset. having assets that can be tradable and running on each because then you start getting some price deviation between the two. Um, it can, and it can complicate matters in case any issues do pop up as um, E2.0 starts to evolve. Um, so for instance, a bug runs out, maybe, uh, maybe they need to find a way to resolve any uh, differences between the uh, staking amount and uh What's being read on Ethereum because they want to they want to make sure the uh, the current Ethereum network to make sure like those are completely uh, equal because you start running any sort of differences between the two that's going to make it far more complicated when they do finally merge. Right now, keeping them separate is and keeping and making sure everything on Ethereum 2.0 isn't transactable can prevent um, any sort of issues like that running down the road. Uh, but once they do merge, then essentially Ethereum 1.0 and 2.0 become the same network. Uh, it's essentially Ethereum at that point. And all the accounts and balances will be transferred onto Ethereum 2.0. And they can be read the same as everything that's on the beacon chain, which would allow everyone to start um, removing the the staked amount that they have, as well as the any rewards that they may have earned during that time. So it's more it's more of like a safety measure at this point. Um, which makes sense because um, going forward, you're only going to be able to use it 
Ethereum 2.0 uh, to a limited extent. Um, so really, you're just looking forward to when that functionality starts to unlock. That's when you'll be able to access everything. So because obviously people realize that uh, or or the designers of Ethereum 2.0 realize that there's a lot of things people could be doing with their ETH. And so <laughs> they probably need to incentivize them in some way to, uh, you know, move the ETH over to Ethereum 2.0 without losing too much opportunity cost. So what are some of the examples out there of new services that have popped up that still enable people to you know, use ETH on ETH1 once they have started staking? Uh, one, of, one of the biggest hesitancies many people have is that there's going to be this, you know, kind of like lockup period on your ETH. It will be unlocked by, you know, phase 1.5, but who knows really when that comes. It could be, you know, uh, 12 months from now, it could be 36 months from now. Uh, for all practical purposes, it's, it's, it's indefinite. So in the meantime, like you need to be able to access some liquidity on your on your ETH, and there's basically like two major classes of solutions. Uh, one would be uh, kind of like what Liquid Stake is doing. So basically, what they allow you to do is, if you stake uh, through them, uh, they will allow you to borrow USDC on your on your ETH. So just get like get a, get a kind of collateralized loan. Um, and there's kind of the, this larger class solution called like um, the staking derivatives. These class of solutions are are kind of a little bit you know, less developed at this time than I would say the, the former. But the basic idea is that um, you have either a, a centralized service provider, like an exchange, or you'll have a decentralized uh, protocol, say like, uh, like, like Rockpool or Sapphire. And uh, you will be able to deposit your ETH with them to, to stake. And then in exchange, it'll give you uh, kind of like an ETH uh, derivative which was called like death for now instead of death. Um, <laughs> and, and the idea is that, is that um, you can use this like death uh, on Ethereum um, to access, I mean, everything in Ethereum. So, uh, you know, in theory, you could you know, send it to Compound and borrow DAI against it. You could uh, mint DAI against it in Maker or, you know, whatever opportunities you want to do in, in Ethereum. In theory, you'll be able to do with this kind of uh, derivative ETH. Well, one thing, um, despite, you know, all these developments and, you know, allowing people to both stake and, um, and do other things with their Ethereum, there is this concern that because there's a lot of financially appealing opportunities in DeFi on Ethereum, that people won't be super interested in staking. How much of a threat or concern do you think the um, appeal of DeFi is to staking on Ethereum 2.0? Uh, I, don't, I actually, I actually don't think it's a it's a major concern. I think the the biggest thing with between staking and and DeFi uh, just boils down to how uh, validator returns are designed. So if if there was this event where, uh, say, you know, yields in DeFi were very high, and then some people who were staking and granted, like this this is actually uh, significantly more important in uh, phase 1.5 beyond when you can actually withdraw your ETH and you know use it in in DeFi. Uh, although I will touch on phase zero kind of after this thought, but uh, you know if if there was a case where you know ETH was uh, being withdrawn from uh, proof uh, staking to go for, for use in DeFi, uh, well the way that the the returns are validated as a design is that 
Uh, if there's less people staking, the rewards will be higher. If there's more people staking, there will be uh, rewards will be lower. So at a certain point, uh, the rewards will become like more attractive again. Uh, so that there's kind of like a minimum amount that um, on you know how much people would would, would want to like leave for DeFi versus for staking. Um, and then kind of another related point is that uh, staking and in kind of DeFi are just two different products. Like uh, staking is you're just getting a kind of like a native yield on your ETH for providing Ethereum security. And uh, you know basically the the two main risks that you assume are uh, well one the Ethereum blockchain failing, which is just, you know, systemic risk that uh, you get from holding any asset on Ethereum. And then two is uh, like validator risk, uh, the, the risk that your validator uh, just doesn't perform or you, know, you behave maliciously. And even that can actually be diversified away if you were to go through kind of like a decentralized uh, staking protocol that kind of diversifies your validator risk across multiple, multiple validators. Um, but can you just lay out what those penalties or, or, you know, what happens if you get slashed, just so people know? High level idea is that if you uh, behave maliciously, let's say like you double sign uh, blocks, uh, you can lose uh, some of, if not all of your stake for, for, for doing so. Uh, and basically what that means is that like, you know, that 32 ETH that you posted as, you know, basically collateral to stake gets deleted. Okay. Yeah. That's, um, that's a little bit harsh, but I guess, um, <laughs> there have been plenty of people in DeFi this summer who got totally wiped out by various things that happened. So, um, <laughs> and so one other thing that I want to talk about is this, um, incident that happened on the test net where one particular client for Ethereum 2.0 had a design flaw and that caused, participation on the network to go from 80% down to 5% because uh, pretty much all those validators got wiped out. So how is client diversity, which is uh, like a principle really that is important to Ethereum and weirdly not at all to Bitcoin, or or rather they, they just have like completely different perspectives on it, which is super interesting to watch. Um, but client diversity is something that Ethereum really values. And yet here we have like certain clients that are really just becoming the most popular out of the gate. How is Ethereum working to mitigate the risks around that? Happy you brought that up. It's, it's kind of very interesting to look at the two different philosophies. So right now you have Bitcoin where over 98% of clients run on Bitcoin, run Bitcoin core. Uh, on the other side, you have Ethereum uh, where eight, about 80% are running Geth at the moment. But there is a bit of a diversity into that 20% of what clients are people running there. And so there's definitely a push to move towards a more um, diverse client base uh, so that you don't have one client that's overreaching or ha having too much control over the network. Um, yeah, but actually one thing I'd say is that they've been trying to do this since the time that they launched. And it's always been that there's been one dominant one, which is also very interesting. Yes. But anyway, keep going. I, I completely agree. And I think they blame a lot of, or, or they, I don't want to say blame, but it, I think a lot of the reason behind that was they didn't really have too many clients to start with when they first launched the chain. So you have this first mover advantage where Geth becomes the popular um, client to use. It gains a lot of traction, gains a lot of trust. And all of a sudden it's kind of hard to eat into that market share. Um, so this, that's why for Ethereum 2.0, the Ethereum Foundation put a lot of money into via grants into building out this uh, a variety of clients, and I know they at one point were working on eight to ten different clients, 
And at the moment right now, you have four viable ones going into the beacon chain. Even with that said, there has been one client named Prism that has become the favorite amongst mo- most validators. And like you said, on, on the test net, it had a bug and that issue reared its ugly head. That one bug caused the entire network not to go down, but to drop to a very low percentage of validators actually working on the client. So that means they couldn't finalize blocks. They could keep building and adding blocks to the network, but they couldn't finalize them, which just means that at some point, it's possible that those could be reverted. Um, so how do you prevent that? Uh, so there's a pretty unique design within Ethereum that if more than 33%, if you can't finalize, so you need 66% of validators actively valid, uh, working and voting on blocks uh, to finalize the chain. If you can't do that, then Ethereum will automatically start penalizing validators that are not online. And so it's called an inactivity leak. And if you're inactive, it'll start gradually and then actually exponentially uh, reducing your staked amount, either to get you to a point where you're dropped off the network um, or to actually incentivize people to come back and join the network and do what they're supposed to do. And so eventually it gets back to that 66% minimum. Um, what that means in, in the terms of uh, client diversity is if you are running a majority client and say that is somewhere between 40-60% of the network and it has a bug, you are automatically under risk if all of a sudden those clients go under. So you are in some sense incentivized to run a, min- a minority client and run one that may not make up 33% or more of the network because then you're not at risk for those types of uh, those bugs. Yeah, it's almost like surge pricing or something, but applied in a completely different <laughs> context. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk about ETH, about how ETH, the asset, will change. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Back to my conversation with Ryan Watkins and Wilson Withiam. Yields for staking start at 30% if the number of ETH staked is around the 524,000 necessary to launch the beacon chain. But if it ever reaches 16 million ETH staked, the max yield would be about 4% a year. And if it goes higher, like to 100 million, then it would drop below 2%. So in general, when you look at this, does it feel like this is a good monetary policy that would keep the chain secure, et cetera? Or are there any concerns that you have about it? I think this is like a, a good opportunity to talk about like kind of the philosophy of Ethereum's monetary policy. So uh, Ethereum's monetary policy uh, can be defined as minimum necessary issuance. And the basic idea is that uh, Ethereum will always issue an amount of ETH that will keep the network secure over time. And the difference between you know this philosophy and say uh, Bitcoin's, which is uh, deterministic issuance in fixed supply is that uh, whereas with Bitcoin, it's kind of optimizing for uh, kind of like monetary 
uh, idealism in the sense that you had people that created this that wanted to create this extremely scarce, you know, fixed supply currency that was resistant to uh, debasement. Whereas Ethereum says, hey, well, th- yes, we want our, uh, our currency to be scarce, but what's more important is that Ethereum blockchain uh, stays secure. So that's kind of like the uh, the monetary like policy for Ethereum versus, versus Bitcoin, uh, optimized for security over kind of like you know this monetary idealism. Uh, and each each has their own trade offs. Uh, for uh, Bitcoin, the trade off is that in a sense you kind of set your security budget uh, arbitrarily in the beginning because you just said, hey, we're just going to have halvings every four years, and then we're going to have a fixed supply. And uh, this fee market for block space is supposed to pick up, and that's what's supposed to secure uh, Bitcoin in the long term. And then the trade-off for Ethereum is that, well, Ethereum's monetary policy, I mean, sure, you can say that it's, uh, it's minimary, minimum necessary issuance, but uh, who determines that? And then what does it actually mean, practically speaking? Uh, because with Bitcoin, it's very easy to understand, yeah, like, Every every year is going to be X amount issued. Uh, this is going, this is this can be a total supply in twenty fifty six. It's just all deterministic. It's easy to understand. But whereas with Ethereum, it's just like okay, I, I kind of I, I get that it's supposed to be the minimum necessary to be secure, but it's a little bit hard to you know, to wrap your head around uh, you know what that means and how it works. So uh, there's there's downsides to both, but. You know, I think there, there's room for experimentation and, uh, and you know, they, they, all, they each have their own, their own benefits that uh, each community believes are important. One of the most interesting parts of your analysis around Ethereum 2.0 was about ETH, the asset, and how that will change. You said that under Ethereum 2.0, ETH will become a store of value, a capital asset, and a commodity. And that this is an unprecedented combination. So how does it fit the definition of all three? And how do you know that this is the first time in history that this has happened? <laughs> it's like uh, Chris Bernisky, I think back in 2017, uh, introduced uh, these, this kind of uh, this, this paper from uh, you know, an academic called, I think his name was like Robert Greer, about the, the three superclasses of assets. That, and the idea is that every asset in the world uh, that has ever existed can be classified into these three different categories. Uh, one being stores of value, with the idea being that these are assets that maintain their purchasing power uh, throughout time. Uh, two being capital asset, with the idea being that these are assets that produce and are generated income. And then three being commodities, um, which are assets that can are can be consumed or are they transformable into to something else. So examples of those would be, you know, for uh, a capital asset would be, you know, a stock or a bond in Apple. This is kind of this like income producing uh, asset. An example of commodity would be like oil. Uh, you, know, you can use oil for a ton of different things to power your car. You can turn it to different, um, you know, end products. And then for a store of value, uh, you know, it could be you know, debatably the U.S. dollar. Uh, although some people would kind of scoff at that in this space, or uh, or gold, which actually is both a commodity and a, a store of value. Um, so that, that's kind of like the high level idea of like these these asset classes. Now Ethereum and Ethereum 1.0 is a commodity and a store of value. 
it's a commodity because it's used as uh, as gas to pay for transactions. Um, and I think this relationship will be, or this analogy will be especially powerful when a new EIP is introduced called EIP-1559, uh, where uh, the majority of transaction fees uh, will actually be burned instead of being paid for miners. So it'll quite literally be like, you know, consumed by the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, for store of value, like that's Ethereum's use as a asset in, you know, DeFi to store value, to send transactions, like that's the idea. Uh, so that's Ethereum as, as it exists today. Now, with Ethereum 2.0, uh, it introduces uh, staking. And what staking allows you to do is you can uh, post your ETH as collateral to become a validator on Ethereum 2.0. And now you can actually start generating uh, yields on your, on your ETH. And the amount of yield you will get varies on the amount of uh, ETH that's being staked. So at you know, 524,288 uh, ETH, uh, you know, like, kind of like you said before, like the, 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 the rate that you'll be getting is, is very high. It'll be about, say, like 23, 24%. And then at uh, about like 10 million or 16 million ETH staked, it'll be somewhere between like 4 and 6%. Uh, but the basic idea is that uh, now you're getting a yield on, like a native yield on ETH. Uh, so when you combine those, those three things, it's like, well, you have all these different sources of uh, demand for ETH the asset, uh, and ETH is being you know used for all these different things. And then, uh, you know, I'm like a little bit hesitant to say that it's unprecedented because um, I've, I've, I've not literally explored every asset in, in history. <laughs> um, but from what I, from what I what I have seen uh, is this, there's nothing really like this. Um, you know, something that is a, a non-sovereign uh, store of value, you know, just like Bitcoin, uh, that is also used to, you know, power this, you know, globally scalable uh, computer uh, and also offers a, a native yield, uh, almost similar to a, a kind of like sovereign bond in a sense. Um, and the, the combination of the three just makes ETH uh, super interesting um, as, as an asset. And when you mentioned EIP-1559 and about how the fees will be burned, so how do you think that will affect the issuance of ETH or the net issuance, I should say, and you know what it will look like in terms of a, a store of value? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, some, some helpful context as well is that when the Beacon Chain launches, uh, hopefully you know, eight days from now, December 1st, all the issuance from the beacon chain will actually be incremental to the issuance on Ethereum 1.0. So over the next uh, year and a half, say, uh, Ethereum uh, will issue about you know 3.8% worth, or it's like it's an annual inflation rate will be about 3.8, like 3.9%. And then on the beacon chain, you'll get an incremental uh, issuance depending on how much ETH is staked of anywhere from you know 0.10% to 0.8% in the most aggressive uh, scenarios where there's like, you know, 30, 30 million ETH staking. So in total, like Ethereum monetary policy would likely be between you know, four and 5% uh, over the next, you know, one to two years. Now, where this changes is that uh, if EIP-1559 gets implemented, uh, you know, on ETH1, where the majority of transactions will be taking place until the, the ETH1, ETH2 merger, is that you will actually be able to reduce the issuance in the in the meantime? But yeah, so I'll, I'll actually back up again. So so, th- so that's kind of like what the monetary policy looks like for the next uh, you know, year and a half. 
And I think where it gets particularly interesting is once the ETH1 merger happens and ETH1 is now merged into ETH2 as a, as a shard, well, that once incremental issuance from the beacon chain, uh, like I said, of you know 0.1% to 0.8% is now the only issuance for Ethereum. And this is actually where it gets interesting because I believe it's a, a 20 million ETH state per day. Uh, Ethereum, and this is in Ethereum 2.0, a 20 million ETH stake per day. Ethereum will be issuing about 2,000 ETH per day to pay to uh, validators. And uh, if you look at like how much ETH per day people were paying over the summer uh, in DeFi on average, it was about uh, 5,000 ETH, right? So if, if, if like Ethereum 2.0 was launched today, and people are playing the same amount of transaction fees, like net issuance would be uh, like way negative. Now, of course, there's there's like uh, there's some nuance here, and the, the big nuance is that uh, Ethereum 2.0 is going to increase transaction uh, scalability, right? So, in theory, it'll actually alleviate the fee pressure, so that it's not where you have to pay you know, like forty dollars to go in, you know, send your friend some money or exchange an asset on on Uniswap, but. Uh, according to some of the analysis that that we did, that we based off, uh, you know, the economic models that Consensus uh, put together, uh, it, it looks like the the likely issuance rate for um, for Ethereum 2.0 will probably be like, and I say net issuance rates, so like net of the the burns will be, you know, anywhere you know from say like negative 0.5 percent to like 0.5 percent. It, it really just depends on like how many uh, validators are participating and then. You know, ultimately, how much ETH is being burned, but you know, the the the, the big idea here is that uh, issuance for Ethereum 2.0 will be uh, extremely low, uh, if not negative. And one other thing I wanted to ask about was the DETH that we mentioned earlier, these ETH derivatives that will be minted so that people can stake, but also then continue to play around in the Ethereum 1 ecosystem. So let's say I stake my ETH and I get back some DETH, and then I use that to mint DAI on MakerDAO but then my vault gets liquidated. <laughs> so hopefully people understood that. I, I think most of my listeners um, have been following my DeFi posts or, or my posts, podcasts. Um, but essentially that's like uh, the money that you put up as collateral. Now you've lost it. Um, but, you know, supposedly you own this ETH on Ethereum 2.0. So if that happens, then who can claim the ETH that I've staked on Ethereum 2.0? Yeah, so I guess this this is like in like basically before phase one point five when uh, you know ETH one version E two and you have these derivatives where uh, you can't actually like claim the the underlying ETH. So yeah, in this scenario where uh, the MakerDAO system votes in kind of D ETH like this derivative ETH as collateral, and then people are minting DAI against this collateral, you know, the liquidation process would be the same. You know. Uh, the collateralization ratio falls below the, the target amount. The DETH gets liquidated, and then uh, you know, whoever's liquidator now has this, this, this DETH. It depends on the like the staking solution that created this DETH. But let's say it was like one of these decentralized protocols that uh, you know minted this DETH. Yes, like eventually you will be able to claim uh, the underlying uh, ETH by having this DETH derivative. And basically, what it is is just like uh, you know, for these decentralized staking protocols, is that this DETH is a right to redeem a certain amount of underlying ETH. So, if you hold, say, thirty-two 
ETH and the exchange rate is one to one, you'll be able to redeem uh, the 32 ETH. Um, you know, once once it, it is redeemable. So, uh, so this is, I guess, the, the important concept here is that yes, like all these ETH derivatives uh, are, are fungible when when they're issued from the same uh, provider. All right. So now let's talk about the fact that this whole process to moving to Ethereum 2.0 is going to take years. And meanwhile, you know, Ethereum, as we've been talking about, has kind of been bumping up against its max capacity in particular because of DeFi, which is a pretty active ecosystem. And one of the issues with DeFi is that the different protocols in DeFi are composable, um, which is the way that people describe the fact that you can, you know, do a transaction that involves multiple multiple of these protocols within one block. And that's why they call DeFi money Legos. So because that would kind of want, you know, like all the DeFi protocols would then sort of want to, you know, stay with each other to keep in the same ecosystem. What do you think is most likely to happen in the meantime to solve this fairly urgent problem that we already have around scaling? Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. And and a lot of the Ethereum researchers recognize this. Uh, scalability is a need now. And uh, frankly, what Ethereum 2.0 can bring from a scalability perspective is years away, maybe a year, maybe maybe a little bit over than that. Um, so in the in the short term, the solution that a lot like Vitalik and some of the other teams have been working on for years is transitioning over to a layer two solution. And specifically, the one everyone is talking about is called rollups. There are various flavors of them. But in general, you can kind of look at them as, as roll-up contracts. And essentially, all it is is taking a lot of the transactions that we that DeFi is handling today, moving them to a layer that's above Ethereum right now. So kind of taking them off-chain, but having security ties back into the chain. So they would periodically um, actually transfer these transactions, batch them together, and submit them, submit them to the base chain. So in, in a way, it's providing similar security guarantees. So I think the uh, the perspective is that it, it, even if you, uh, if any issues happen on these chains, uh, on these other layer two solutions, you would still at any chance be able to claim your uh, the assets on the main chain. Um, so right now it's kind of moving towards that layer two solution. And like you brought up, that uh, the issue is like as as a application moves from the base chain up to one of those layers, it removes that, that those composability bonds. No longer will I be able to run a transaction that calls different applications in the same block. It would have to be done in an asynchronous manner, or um, it would have to take multiple blocks. Um, so that one issue with rollups is that, and one of the reasons why it has to be asynchronous is to ensure security, there is a lengthy withdrawal period. So I go up into a layer two protocol, I can start using an application that deployed a contract there. I want to get back out and use some of the other contracts. It's about, I've heard anywhere between three to four days to a week to get out. Um, so there is this issue of one, getting liquidity out to trying to call transactions uh, between two uh, different applications across these two chains. Um, there aren't any limitations to composability within a single rollup. So that might mean a lot of 
a, a lot of applications go and build on the same rollup. And eventually, that, I, one of the issues is if that everyone moves onto the same rollup, you start um, running to the same scalability issues that are present today. So that that's why you, you kind of have like the, this relationship where you're trying to figure out what is the best way to scale Ethereum, but not lose what really makes it special, which are some of these composability bonds. There are some solutions in place to try and help out on the liquidity side to minimize the issues of getting out. So one could potentially be a cross-chain liquidity solution like ThorChain, for example, where you'd be able to actually move between chains without waiting for that lengthy withdrawal time. That's a decentralized option. You can also go through a centralized market maker to to accomplish that. Um, There isn't a great solution to completely fix the composability issues at this moment. Uh, There are some um, solutions out there, one in particular called from Connects Network called Spacefolds, which would allow two different layer two networks to communicate and transact. But um, but right now it's still working towards what is that going to be a solution that would allow cross-chain composability. And that's definitely going to be one of those issues going forward. What's your sense? Do you think that they're going to address the scalability issues quickly enough? Or do you think that we're going to start to see significant migration over to some other blockchains? Like I've heard some people saying, you know, they're looking at Polkadot, Solana, Near. Like, what's your sense? Uh, it, I'm, it's realistic that some applications, there's going to be some leakage. Uh, I think a lot of what's going on on DeFi right now is Ethereum centric and moving off is not part of their near term plan. And if it's going to be, they're going to move up to a roll up solution. Also, a lot of these other networks aren't necessarily production ready. They're really on kind of like the same timeline as roll ups. So the roll up solutions that we're talking about, some of the uh, bigger name ones like Optimism and Offchain Labs is um, solution, they might be coming out sometime within the next four to five months. Uh, and you might see the same sort of uh, maturity trajectory timelines for these other chains to uh, to allow applications to actually start building on some of these. So I think some use cases, particularly maybe non-financial use cases, might move over to some of these other chains. But I think when it comes to DeFi applications, Ethereum is where the action is. And that's where a lot of these platforms that are building off of Uniswap, building off of Compound, they're not going to want to move away from that. And those base layer platforms aren't going to want to move from Ethereum because a lot of what they are are doing is based on that. It's tied into what Ethereum has been building. And so if you want to really get the advantages of what Ethereum 2.0 can bring down the line, staying within that ecosystem is really going to be a part of their, uh, their roadmaps going forward. All right. Well, we'll have to see what happens. Um, So we're running out of time a little bit, but I do still want to dive a little bit more into phase one, phase one point, and at least phase 1.5, we can discuss whether or not um, how deeply to go into 2.0. But um, one thing I wanted to understand about phase one was, so this is where we, well, actually, so no, I should do this question all at once because um, as you know, Vitalik uh, wrote a post where he said because the movement toward rollups is kind of happening at a pretty quick pace and there seems to be some consensus around that as like a good way to scale. Um, and frankly, that if they 
make it work, then that will actually provide more transactions per second than the originally planned Ethereum 2.0. So he said that there's a scenario where um, there would, like Ethereum would move to Ethereum 1.5 and then be done. I wanted to know, you know, what your thoughts were in terms of like whether or not or, or how likely you thought that would be to happen. But then also one thing when I was um, researching for the show that confused me a little bit is I read that. So in phase one, that's where they introduced the different shards. Um, but then, yeah, I didn't really know how the shards work with the rollups. Like, are we still going to have all these little mini blockchains and then also the rollups? Or yeah, if you could help me understand and the listeners, that would be great. One of, one of the benefits that can happen uh, when phase one launches is that you have all these various shard chains. They're acting as they call them data, avail- data availability layers. And really, they can just act as kind of storage layers, storage chains. And uh, at the moment, on their own, somewhat useless, uh, mainly just trying to get the network to come to consensus. But there is a uh, there's an option for rollups to actually use these networks that they can plug into these networks and use them as data storage layers. So that would actually get if if roll if the rollup plan works and you see applications moving up to another layer, they can actually plug into one of these very 64 shard chains and use them as kind of this this data storage layer. And that would actually give you the opportunity to um, get use Ethereum 2.0 scalability earlier than phase 1.5 or phase 2. Um, okay. So in a way, it's, it's not that different from Ethereum 2.0's final vision in the sense that there would be kind of like a layer to, or there would be a layer for execution. There would be a layer for storage. It's just that in Ethereum 1.5 and done, what would happen is that the execution would happen on rollups and then the storage would still be in the, in the shards at, at, that are introduced in phase one. Is that, is that it? That's precisely correct. Exactly. So yeah, all the scalability, everything that's happening on the base layer, that would all be taken care of by shard chains that plug into the beacon chain. All the execution where the where the applications live, where users actually interact with, that's going to all happen on a roll-up layer. Okay. So what do you think the odds are that we end up with Ethereum 1.5 and done versus Ethereum 2.0 as originally planned? So I, I'm pretty... I, I think a lot of applications are going to move up to rollups. This is all dependent on how much adoption rollups get. And right now you're starting to see synthetics be very bullish on the fact that rollups are going to lead, are, are really going to be the near term, near to midterm scaling solution for Ethereum. Uh, there's a good chance Uniswap has done some integrations with Optimism as well, which is a rollup solution. And uh, as soon as you start to see some of these big DeFi players move up, I just I just suspect that a lot of other applications will move up as well because they just they're very reliant on those. Um, they plug into them and they 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 like we said are composable with each other. If this roll up solution works out and pans out, which I think it will, I, I think there's a very good chance that you'll either see no phase two or very limited phase two. So maybe instead of putting uh, execution layers on every shard chain, maybe it's like four to eight of the shard chains. A very small percentage, which kind of limits the complexity and limits development time, so you can actually get there sooner. But uh, I think there is a very strong chance that either phase two gets dialed back, or or there's really very little need to go that far. So you'll be able to actually use Ethereum 2.0 for its scalability needs 
a lot sooner than initially projected. Yeah. And then I was going to say, I say like one thing I would add uh, is that uh, with sharding, like phase one sharding, like using uh, these shards of data availability layers um, and rollups, uh, you can probably get about 100,000 uh, transactions per second. And the benefit of this is that, you know, this could potentially come in the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. And then you have, you know, an Ethereum 2.0, which can scale Ethereum like orders of magnitude. Um, so if, you know, the, the ecosystem adapts to this world, then we get scalability like way sooner than we would if we were to wait for phase two. Uh, and then at that point, like the prospect of uh, doing phase two becomes less attractive because you don't actually get any incremental scalability from uh, enabling computation on these on these shards. Yeah, um, I already know we made a bet in this episode, but I think if I were to make another bet, I would also bet on this, assuming that everything continues going as it's been going. Um, all right, so uh, we're going to do two last quick questions. One is just like a general question, but one is like for people who might be interested in staking. Um, what do you think is the biggest risk that Ethereum 2.0 faces? Like if you were an Ethereum researcher or developer or whatever, what would you be thinking about most right now or working about working on most right now, you know, where, where do you see like p- potentially the biggest pitfalls um, in the game plan moving forward? What is around like ETH derivatives? So there, there is this idea that it maybe just like kind of zoom out a little bit higher level is that there's always this trade off between like in, in cryptocurrency specifically uh, that people care about between like decentralization and convenience. And people oftentimes are comfortable custodying their cryptocurrencies and centralized exchanges or custodians, or in the case of uh, staking, just comfortable staking through uh, a service provider rather than doing it themselves. And the reason why this is important is because there could be a scenario, although I don't think this is unlikely, uh, because of the existence of decentralized uh, staking options and then the fact that validating is uh, is very accessible to the average user. But there is a scenario where a lot of people end up staking with, say, like a Coinbase or a Binance of the world. And Coinbase or Binance issues their own ETH derivative. And then that ETH derivative becomes extremely liquid in secondary markets. It starts to get a lot of integrations in DeFi, maybe even CeFi as well. So now you can like borrow and lend against it. Um, and, you know, this kind of liquidity creates a, a network effect. Um, actually, Dan Elitzer wrote like a great piece on this um, where, you know, it almost becomes like, you know, a USDT, like, you know, Tether kind of thing where, you know, if people want to go and stake, they're probably going to go do it with the centralized service provider because, uh, I mean, yes, it's like convenient, but most importantly, they get liquidity and uh, utility from this ETH derivative that's not available with these other options. So there's a scenario where staking could end up uh, centralized for this reason, but you know, like I said, I, I, I don't, I don't think this risk is likely, but you know, it, it is, a, it is a possibility. I, I, I was going to echo that. I, I think staking centralization is one of the biggest issues that as some people present as as a problem with staking, because um, it is a very real, it, it's very real. People like convenient; they usually pick convenience over sovereignty. Um, so you could see a lot of people staking with. Uh, exchanges very easily. Um, but I, I will preface this with the design around ETH 2.0. 
uh, somewhat disincentivizes that. Because like we said, if a lot of the same, if the validators are running the same clients and they all happen to go down at once, those ones will be more likely to be the ones that get slashed. Um, or because another one of the designs around it's, it's one, oh, we didn't mention this is there are slashing penalties, but the slashing penalties get ramped up if more validators are offline or behaving maliciously at the same time. So if you're running all these validators on the same services and they're kind of doing the same thing, they all fall offline at the same time, they'll all get slashed uh, a much higher amount. So if you're staking with a single service, you're at a much higher risk unless they're using some sort of decentralized um, validator service on the back end. Um, yeah. So. yeah. And, uh, and I was going to say like, um, that also like that kind of brings up a point that's kind of related to the uh, ETH derivatives as well, is that um, if like a centralized service provider, say Coinbase, were to issue their own ETH derivative, uh, the risk of that ETH derivative are not the same as uh, the risk of uh, a decentralized staking pool issuing its own derivative. And the key difference is that with uh, Coinbase, the, the risk is that, uh, well, I mean, beyond the custodial risk, but the, the risk is that the, for the derivative is that uh, Coinbase's validators uh, just don't perform or they behave maliciously. Whereas with you, uh, with like the ETH derivative that is centralized staking protocol issues, the validator risk are spread across this entire kind of like network of, of validators um, in this protocol. Um, so, I mean, I mean, actually, I think one good analogy, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, uh, it doesn't bring, you know, memories of the financial crisis when, when you think about this, but it's a difference between like an individual uh, mortgage and a, a mortgage-backed security that kind of pulls all these individual mortgages into, into one security to diversify the, the risk. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a reverse analogy, but anyway. Um, okay. So then this is the questioner for uh, people who are potentially interested in participating. What do you think is riskier, putting your money in DeFi or trying to stake on Ethereum 2.0 at this point? So I think it depends on what you're doing in DeFi. If you are putting your... Yeah. So if you're putting your... Basically, like anytime you put your money into DeFi... There are uh, a bunch of risks that you assume. There is smart contract risk. There is uh, composability risk because of all these different protocols interacting. Um, and then there's also like the the risk of just you know Ethereum as a blockchain failing, which kind of like I, I think of it as like the systemic risk of of, uh, of DeFi. Uh, whereas with staking, there's really just two risks: one being validator risk, which you can diversify away with these decentralized staking solutions. Uh, and then just kind of systemic risk of, of Ethereum. Like, uh, so, so those are the kind of differences in risk. Now, within DeFi, there's a bunch of different things you can do. I mean, you could you know, deposit your funds into Compound, which has been you know, heavily audited and you know, uh, known and reputable team. Or you could go in, uh, go put your money into like a, a new yield farm that popped up yesterday that some pseudonymous developers created, and you risk getting like rug pulled. So, uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, uh, differences here. Um, so, yeah. So I, I would say, like, yes, like they they are competitive, but like, um, but it's this it's, it's just there's it's kind of different things. This is really. Yeah, okay. and I, you know, I don't know every last person who listens to my show, but I'm pretty sure if they're listening to my show, then a lot of them wouldn't be. 
um, you know, going into a, an unaudited DeFi contract by an anonymous developer and getting mug pulled. So hopefully, hopefully, I'm sure people will write in now and be like, that happened to me. But anyway, um, and Wilson, do you have a take? Yeah, um, I, I, I think it, obviously it comes down. It's different personas are, are attracted to the various forms of risk. Um, so there's going to just going to be a different user type that is willing to dive into these unaudited contracts that are proposing high yield returns. Uh, but it, it's going to depend on, on what applications you're going to use and what is your investment horizon. If you're looking at on, on a long term, staking is going to be relatively safe um, as long as you're doing your research on what validator provider that you end up using and what service that you're going to go forward with that. Because uh, like we said, it is, it's very difficult to not make money on the staking part. So you can, it, it, you're really going to have to work hard to ha- not be, have a good uptime or use a validating service that may not be as trustworthy to not make some sort of return or lose your money on it. Whereas with DeFi, of course, there are some applications that are, very well audited that have done um, a lot of work on that on that service and are, and are and are trustworthy within the in the whole ecosystem that would be a lot would be just as safe to to work with. Um, and then obviously there's a whole other part to it that um, where that where the madness comes in where these flash loan attacks are very relevant. Um, so it's just something to keep an eye out for that there are just more risks involved with with DeFi at this point. All right. Well, this has been super fascinating to dive into um, this huge momentous change happening on one of the biggest blockchains. Um, where can people learn more about each of you and Masari? Yeah. Uh, so you can check out uh, you know, both Wilson and I's work on masari.io. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter at RyanMockins underscore. And you can you can find me on Twitter at Wilson Withium. Uh, not as active as the other guys, but uh, feel free to jump on. I, I retweet them constantly. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Yeah, thanks, Laura. Thank you for having us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Ryan, Wilson, and Ethereum 2.0, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the show on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Bossy Baker, Shashank, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.